internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I am joined today by, of course, the lovely Erica Cantor, who's uh, looks like in her closet again today. Yes, uh, I can always tell when you're traveling, <laughs> right? The, the clothing behind you, <laughs> and uh, also joined by the host of Suspect Season Two, Ashley Fonts. And we just learned not farts. It is not. It is not farts. farts. It is not right. farts. Please, <laughs> a few people have mistaken it, perhaps yeah. intentionally. Joking. Yeah. So on CNN was that was that like live on the air? They came they came out with uh, Ashley farts. It was live, and it was oh I God. think it was my first year there. I was there oh. for many years, and I did kind of freeze for a second, and I thought this is going to be a great story later. Yes. So you were new enough that you just like let it slide, like this is just show business. I guess they call you farts, and then we just go on about our business. I had to let it slide because I was doing a really a story. That was very dark, too. So I couldn't really say, oh, ha, ha, how funny, and then slide into this horrible Right, that's story. a tough transition to make. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now you – were you a part of season one of Suspect? I know the host in season one um, was Matthew Scher, right? Um, that's right. Were you a part, part of that or, or no, not at all? No, not at all. Um, no, I was still an investigative reporter at CNN at that point um, and had nothing to do with season one of Suspect. Right. Um, so and, and let's get into a little bit about your career. So you're no stranger to investigative journalism. You've been doing it for a little while. I, I got to be honest with you. You don't look old enough for any of these things that Erica put in these notes to be accurate. Um, <laughs> it's she, the hyperbaric <laughs> chamber I sleep in every night. There's a lot of <laughs> it's, it's good lighting in my closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. But it should be noted that uh, Ashley also was in a very nice closet. I know she had a quite a, you had a nice shoe collection behind you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, all heels. Very organized. Those look difficult to walk in. It's not um, like my pile of shoes in the closet. Looks nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're an award-winning journalist, investigative journalist. And you've been doing this for over 20 years. You've covered, um, among other things, but primarily criminal justice, women's rights issues, and military culture. How long were you were you at CNN? 14 years. And before CNN, I was a reporter with the Miami Herald. Okay, and so I'm old. This, yeah, that seems impossible. I mean, she looks younger than Erica. Erica looks oh. terrible. She looks well, like she's in her I don't have the mid seventies. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna retire soon. Yeah. You look great, Erica. <laughs> uh, so you were from Miami, presumably, or how did you end up at the Miami Herald? No, I grew up in a little small town in uh, Missouri, actually. Okay. And um, and then, no, I I uh, moved to London and New York City and I lived all around and I'm just trying to, you know, sell stories and work as a journalist. And I was living in Berlin um, uh, on a fellowship at the International Center um, for Journalists. And um, 
my time in Germany sort of came to an end because I couldn't get my visa renewed and uh, briefly moved back to the States. I think my parents were like, oh, no, you're coming back here. Really? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then the Miami Herald offered me a job. And so that's it's it's a long story how I got to Miami. So with CNN, is CNN based out of L.A. or New York? CNN headquarters is still in Atlanta, but much of their um, television work, production work is based in New York. Um, Not so much L.A. I to be clear, I was never a TV person. Um, I had no interest in in, uh, doing television at all. Um, I was a long form writer uh, and a newspaper refugee. Like so many newspaper refugees, our newspapers were kind of failing and CNN Digital said here we have money, come here and do right. work. <laughs> and that was incredible. So um, I just, I had a, a great run at CNN with some really talented writers. How did you get into your your kind of focus, the, the criminal justice stuff and the women's rights stuff and the military culture? It, was that just something you were interested in or because it kind of became your niche sort of? Yeah, I think from the very first story I reported in my career when I was, you know, a baby, I uh, moved to Memphis and I worked at an alternative news weekly there. Remember the alt weeklies in the 90s? Yeah. The best oh, yeah. things ever. Erica um, does not remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> I, I stumbled on a story there. It was really what's referred to as 201 Poplar, which is a jail in Memphis. It's still to this day, 20 plus years later, having problems. But it was overrun by the Gangster Disciples, which was the most lethal gang in the American South. And they were kind of using the jail as their corporate headquarters, if you will. And mm-hmm. it, it's it's a long story. And I ended up doing focusing on that story for two years. And I just learned so much about you know, how law enforcement works, you know, how the criminal justice system doesn't work for many people. Um, And then when I moved to Miami, you know, Miami is uh, teeming with lots of criminal stories. So it just made sense that I continue doing that. Yeah. And you've done a lot, you've done a lot of reporting for like reporting with purpose. You actually are responsible for uh, a law in Georgia regarding the destruction of rape kits. Can you talk about the, that story that you broke about the police departments d- destroying the rape kits? Yeah, that took about two and a half years of investigation. So we were able to show that dozens of law enforcement agencies um, across the country were destroying um, evidence in rape cases, uh, rape kits, and they were also bungling hundreds of cases um, while the statute of limitations was still ticking. So that's you know, destroyed rape kits while those cases could have been prosecuted. Mm -hmm. But of course, they wouldn't have been able to be prosecuted because the evidence was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And after that story came out, there was a huge amount of change. I mean, law enforcement agencies were embarrassed. They publicly vowed to change how they investigate sexual assault. Uh, The state of Georgia passed a law prohibiting rape kit destruction. I have no doubt that law enforcement agencies are still destroying rape kits Mm -hmm. because there are almost no laws that require inspection of evidence rooms to see if uh, rape kits are being maintained. Yeah, I was really proud of that project. I mean, it definitely took it out of me um, because we read, you know, thousands of sexual assault investigations, you know, many of them 10, 12 times each. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it does get get to your mental health a little bit. I'm sure. Yeah, even just doing the the work I do in Untruth and Justice, you get you 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 bury yourself in murder for 
years and years and years, it gets to be a pretty people always ask me why I don't listen to or watch any true crime. Like, cause I, I'd live it all day long. I need, like, I'm, I want to watch a comedy special when I'm done working at the end of the day. I don't want to see any more, any more sadness. Totally. I'm the same way. It, it has to be light. You know, my office, maybe it's because I'm the mom of a three-year-old girl, but I painted it pink. It's all different colors. <laughs> it's a happy place to yeah. be. It maybe yeah. looks a little immature, but I don't care because we work on such terrible. Paint our closet paint. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I have baby quail in my office. Oh. Always. Yeah. <laughs> like right now, I I raise quail and I keep my incubators in there. And right now, there's a bunch of little babies that just came out of their shells just Aww. just this morning. <laughs> really? Oh, that's yeah. so amazing. How long have you just, been doing that? Uh, about a year, uh, because as my wife says, I can't sit still and I have to fidget with something. So now I raise quail as a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) How interesting. Okay. I didn't even know you could do that. Amazing timing because, uh, when a dozen eggs cost like $6 right now. Yeah. We have (laughs) eggs coming out of, yeah, we got eggs everywhere. I was just reading people are smuggling eggs over the border, Bob. You could really, you could really capitalize on that. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) I had to get on Becky about it because she was she came home from the grocery store. I have two hundred quail out there. We have a lot of a lot oh, of crap. eggs, and she came home from the grocery store and was like, "Oh my god!" Like two grocery stores were out of eggs, and the other one there were seven dollars a dozen. I'm like, "Why are you buying my?" Stop doing that. Like we have, I'm giving eggs away to people because we have so many of them. So you have like mama quails. This is so dumb to ask. Um, So you have mama quails and they produce these eggs and you take care of the moms. Oh my gosh. I want to do that. And Bob tries to find a way to like insert this into every single interview. Yeah. It's a part of every conversation. (laughs) Talking to an award-winning investigative journalist. But I have quail. I, right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but I have baby quail next to my desk. No big deal. Uh, (laughs) So, um, but, but really like the, the work you did on, on that story, it, 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 it had an impact. It, it caused these law enforcement agencies to wake up, respond, at least in Georgia, we got, um, uh, legislation passed and it's, and there, and people don't realize there's greater effects of this besides just that particular case when they don't process those rape kits and they don't, when they process them properly, those the the DNA profiles they get go into CODIS, so the, so it could solve a crime years later. Even mm-hmm. if they never find the person there, right. some they could solve a crime years later because now that profile is in the system. And they, right. you know, think of like the East Area Rapist or Golden State Killer or whatever moniker the media give, gave him at the different times. You know that you know, when they finally got his DNA in, it's like oh, it matches all these old cases because they they put it in. So mm-hmm. it's. It's tragic that they would just leave it sitting on a show. And the fact that what if someone – a rape kit presumes someone is saying they were raped or there's evidence that someone was raped, why they would never even process those kits to begin with is, is insane. Yeah. And then also I think just to even add to that, you have the fact that they're destroying this evidence and obviously then not prosecuting any of these cases is only going to further the whole – cycle of women not wanting to report or or anybody who's you know a victim of rape not wanting to report because why would they nobody's going to do anything about it anyways you know Mm -hmm. i mean yeah it's just a vicious vicious cycle you're exactly right and what i found uh, you know there wasn't a moment that i wasn't stunned reporting that project because 
every almost every sheriff that I talk or every police chief that I talk to, we tried to stick with just police um, rather than sheriff's offices to keep you know our sample pool even. Um, the crisis of not testing these kits is a very serious one. But what we were finding is that they didn't even make it to the point where they were getting tested. They were destroying them before they were ever tested. Yeah. So, um, but the, the we do have a crisis in this country of a lack of training and understanding of CODIS. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing a police chief after police chief, you know, detective after detective who did not understand how CODIS worked. They did not understand that someone's stranger rapist could be someone's known, you know, date who date rapists yeah. who assaulted them and you will never know those links. And so I just found myself constantly, you know, you don't during an interview want to give someone a lecture, but you want to ask questions, but it really became, Oh, I'm going to have to explain how this works again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard not to get off of that soapbox, especially when you're dealing with the people that are supposed to be the authorities on the matter. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I think, I always try to do a story where it's not about how can I blame this group of people? Because I I think there were certainly exceptions. There were certainly a few cops who were, it was clear to me in their work or non-work, like barely picking up the phone and then closing a case and destroying a rape kit. That seems very intentional. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do my job. Mm -hmm. Most of them did want to do their job. It's just they were not trained properly. They were not given the resources and tools that they could have greatly benefited from to do what they set out to do well. Yeah. And then it is like Erica said, it becomes this like cycle because then those end up being a different cycle, but those end up being the people that are training the next generation that comes in when they never received the proper training to begin with. And then you have, you know, in a lot of the cases we work, you have district attorneys or prosecutors that, don't want, but yeah, I'm dealing with a case right now. Like they didn't want bad. At once they decided we're going to prosecute these two, there was, you know, they would, they would test DNA that was super relevant DNA. It didn't match them. And they're like, well, don't run them through CODIS. That'll ruin my case. If it comes up with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And they say, I mean, I was shocked in this case. It was, you know, it's all these years later, like the DNA report at the bottom says CODIS ready. It was a full enough profile on the victim's body for CODIS. And they didn't run it through CODIS because they didn't want to know. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's not, you bring up such a good point about not a lot of oversight into some of these district attorneys and prosecutors' offices. We caught a prosecutor's office in Missouri, in Springfield, Missouri, authorizing the destruction of these rape kits and breaking the mm-hmm. law. So, yeah. um, you know, and when I say breaking the law, let me be clear. It is it was not illegal and it's still not illegal in a lot of states to destroy rape kits before cases are solved. It's incredible, but it's true. Uh, right. Because of the work of the Innocence Project in the 90s, um, straight to the present, you have those laws that say, OK, someone's been convicted. You have to maintain the evidence for testing right. and retesting. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a huge gap in laws, too. Yeah. yeah. So that what you're talking about, the biological evidence preservation laws, those do exist, but they exist for the benefit of the convicted. Right. So that, you know, they're, they're not there to say as a victim, we're going to make sure we hang on to your DNA. There's no, in most places, no laws to prevent that. It's if you are convicted, we can't destroy the evidence in your case in case you want to taste, test it later with new technology. Exactly. And, you know, I did not know until I did that project what went into a rape exam. And, you know, they're oftentimes four hour long experiences, re-traumatizing experiences. I mean, we can all imagine, but 
um, you know, yes, if a survivor goes through that experience, let's show them the respect to keep the evidence. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Especially when they went through all that in order to obtain the evidence to begin with. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now you're going to have to explain this to me. So you're reporting on the case again. It resulted in the passing of legislation uh, and you were even nominated for an Emmy. And that's the part that confuses me um, because you said you don't do TV. (laughs) So how did you get the how did how did that connection happen? And and let me be clear. That was that was the team that was that was nominated for the Emmy. The the folks Uh who did the animation on that project. So the project was nominated. Um, Okay. I think it it does get misunderstood um, and they need full credit for that. So we had so you can be nominated if there's a television component to your project, which there was. Mm-hmm. So CNN did a we did a full package, if you were that mm-hmm. ran on air. Okay. And then also there was we had incredible animators. If you go to CNN.com backslash destroyed, you'll see the first thing that pops up is an animation. And so that that was the work that was lauded with an Emmy nod. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, and and so uh, Erica tells me that you also you offer classes in journalism. Where do you, are you are you offering classes on your own? Or are you teaching at a college? Where do you do that? No, I did that. I taught. Um, I taught for a little while at a um, wonderful. Um, I guess I could call it a prep school here in Atlanta. And then I I've offered private classes, but I've already moved on to my next podcast, and I don't have time. <laughs> I don't really have time. If somebody wants a lesson, I guess I could probably provide it. But um, but I've done it. I mean, I don't know if I'm a great te- – I shouldn't be saying this, but my mom's a wonderful teacher, retired English teacher. I, I recognize the talent of teachers, and I don't know. I'm, I'm more of a journalist, I think, than a teacher, but maybe I'll get better at it. <laughs> well, speaking of moms, I want to say hello to Mrs. Cantor. Thanks for listening. Uh, <laughs> that's Erica's mother. Hi, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so suspect the first season was great i the and the second season is just is is mind-blowing it's a super super interesting case how did you get connected because what you just described happens to so many people where the that i've spoken with that come from other mediums uh in investigative journalism you know whether it's tv or print or whatever it is and then they somehow land in the podcast space and then that's where they live for a long time after that for as long as this is this industry continues on? <laughs> so, so how did how did you how did this story become season two of Vanish with you um, helping to produce it and host it? Sure. So, um, well, I I actually I mean I was still working with CNN in 2019 um, when they found her body. So I was attuned to that as I sort of explained uh-huh. in episode one. And I had just adopted my daughter, and uh, something kind of lands differently when you become a parent. Um, I, I've always done stories about kids who have endured trauma um, or had violence done to them, but I don't know. I just felt pretty. I felt drawn to her, then kind of put it away. And then I was working one day, and I saw the headline cross two-time gubernatorial candidate arrested for decades-old cold case. Well, I mean, that kind of headline. What the hell? Right, And yeah. um, then I pulled up his indictment. I, well, let me look at this indictment. I've got five, ten minutes. It was the strangest indictment I've ever seen because it laid out all of these examples of how he had essentially, you know, what appeared to be confessed or tried to sort of like Horshack jump up and down saying me, 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 me. 
And yet my big question was, well, wait a second, if he's been if he's been making it known that he had something to do with it all these years, why did it take this long to find him? And so that's what I really I thought, I got to figure this out. I got to know. And I just started doing document diving. Um, I think I filed like 40 records requests or something and within the span of a couple days. Um, and then, of course, went to all the courts websites in Idaho and Colorado and any other places that I, I backgrounded him to see where he had lived previously, you know, from the very beginning, from California mm-hmm. to Idaho to Washington, et cetera. And then I just filed records requests with the sheriff's departments and police departments in every location where he was. And... Um, you know, again, pulling down state and county court records. And uh, I I did that in my own time because I was so interested. I was like, this is a hell of a story. And then fast forward to Matt Sheer and I are are acquaintances in Atlanta. We're friends now (laughs) Uh, since he lives here. And we were just having a casual conversation one day. And he's like, what are you working on? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to leave CNN. And he said, oh, okay, well, (laughs) what have you got going on? I said, I've got this crazy story. And then we were off to the races. So did he? So did, did uh, Matt connect you then to Wondery? And the, did you have an idea that you wanted to do it as a podcast, or were you just somehow I want to tell this story? I love the intimacy of a podcast. I'm a big podcast fan, and I just felt like I didn't want to write this story. It's mm-hmm. too expansive. I I understand how quickly you can bore someone in a three thousand word piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I just felt like I needed I started talking to the family and I thought, I want people to hear this family. I want people to hear what this guy sounds like, Stephen Pankey. It's a, it's obvious. It's a podcast. That's awesome. So then it became um, the Wondery Original Suspect season two vanished in the snow. Uh, it, and it's as all of Wondery shows are. I'm, my other show is a Wondery show. Uh, they're <laughs> Brilliantly produced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> they are. Um, but no, it, it is really good. It, it was a, a six-episode series, and then you did a bonus update seventh episode. And the nice thing for anybody listening now is you can binge the entire thing because you just finished up this month, right? It was. It's over now? Or are you going to do That's any more right. bonuses? Well, we are going to do, I think, a Q&A between Matt and I is, is, is on the table. Um, I don't know when that's coming, though. Okay, so there's probably probably another one coming, but the bulk of the story you can hear now, um, and it's a, a, available. Erica says for free on Amazon for Amazon Prime members or on the Wondery Plus app. <laughs> Thank um, you. So, Good job, Bob. Yeah, almost like you do that for a living, right? <laughs> or and that I I think I've read ads for uh, the show on Truth I and think Justice. You have, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so this this case is super interesting, and I always like a case that is from an area. So I went to college in Boulder and had friends in Greeley and, and uh, I did some work on air force base up in Effie Warren and Cheyenne. Um, So this whole area where all this takes place, I'm very familiar with, Uh, but it's the case of uh, Janelle Matthews. Uh, It took place in Colorado and and season two is called vanish in the snow. This is 1984. And she literally vanished in the snow. I'll let you, I'll let you kind of give the, the beats of the case. Um, but yeah, she comes home and then there's tracks in the snow outside the windows and she's gone for, for what, 15 years. 
Longer than that, close to 35, 36 years. So um, just to set it up, it was December 20th, 1984, five days before Christmas. Not a time that a kid who loves Christmas like Janelle did would run away. And she went to a Christmas concert by herself. Her parents were not there. Mom was out of town. Uh, Janelle had been sort of fighting with her parents. Um, and she's she's adopted. And she'd gotten to that point where she was like, you know, my real mom would let me do this. You know, and so her dad yeah. decided, let me let me give. She's 12. I'm going to give her some space. She can go to this Christmas concert. And Janelle was dropped mm-hmm. off by uh, a friend's father. You know, who also had his daughter there. It's not like he was by himself dropping her off. I don't want to make that seem creepy. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, she walks in the house, and an hour later, she's gone. Um, And her body, so that's 84, and her body was found by oil and gas workers digging for a pipeline in 2019. They they hit her skull. Right. Uh, And hopefully nobody caught my ridiculously terrible math I was, there. I was thinking the same. <laughs> That's a good job. Clap. It's okay. It was 19, 19 minus four. <laughs> 19 minus four is 15. I just want to be clear about that. Uh, I just skipped the 20 other years. Uh, so, um, but yeah, the, like, and, and they know she made it home because she, uh, someone called, right? And she, and she left or took a message down for her dad. Right. We we know that she made it home because her dad was a principal and teachers, you know, called the house to say, oh, I need the next day off. And a teacher had called around 830 or so. And Janelle had taken a message. Uh-huh. Um, so we know she was there. We also know she was there because Russ Ross, the guy who dropped her off, like watched her walk into the house, mm-hmm. um, as did his daughter. So you've got multiple reasons to believe that she was there. Yeah. And then what time was it when the parents came home and there was no sign of her? So we know that she gets the message from the substitute at 830 or from the teacher rather. And then an hour later, her dad comes home at 930. Now, her dad had been at a she had an older sister, Jennifer, 16 years old. So the dad had been with Jennifer at Jennifer's high school basketball game. So Mm -hmm. the dad comes home at 930, goes into the house, sort of says, hi, Janelle nothing you know he kind of piddles around for a little bit let's just keep in mind this is 84 this is not in in a small town in america if you come home and your 12 year old isn't there as she's supposed to be like maybe today our wheels would be like oh my god what's Mm -hmm. happened i need to call the police but in 84 that wasn't really the culture it was like okay so she's not here she's probably at a friend's house let me call around and so he did that and you know nearly a couple of a couple of hours went by before the police were called. Yeah. And it is such a huge difference that anyone that's Erica's age wouldn't quite maybe get. Um, but- I, I remember life before cell phones, but not quite. <laughs> you know, I do think about that a lot, though, like how it's so insane to me that people survived life before like being or even like like raised their children successfully, but without cell phones. Like it's that must <laughs> it's crazy. So and. <laughs> And I and like I almost feel like sometimes I feel like so overbearing and right. we're pretty lax with our kids. I have I have a senior and a junior in high school, and and a sixth grader, but they all have cell phones and we have the Life three hundred and sixty and we know mm-hmm. there's never a moment where we don't know exactly where they're at when they're driving somewhere. 
Like we know how fast they're driving if they hard brake. If they, like the the technology that's out there now, it'll send me alert if if my son like accelerates too fast. Yeah, wow. I have driving. a camera for my dog. Like, the, like these are yeah, like you get it. That did yeah. not exist. <laughs> yeah. No, I can literally I get alerts when my dog is barking. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow, but really? I need all this technology. I'm oh, so new it. to the parenting game. I need I need it all. I love it. I oh, would, yeah. How old? I how old do you say your daughter parent. is? Three. She's only three. <laughs> She's yeah, three. yeah. Give it a give it give it a few Oof. more years, and then yeah. But it's like that Anxiety. stuff's all normal now that <laughs> yeah. we you know just track them. And then all I I just like you said, uh, Ashley. I like I think back to like when I was a kid. I'm like, how did my parents survive not knowing where I was at? Like especially yeah. once I got to be like old enough to drive or even just walk around. You know, go to a neighbor's house. Like if you just left the house, it was like well. Hopefully come they come back when they're supposed home. to, yeah. <laughs> because we have no way to get a hold of them once they've they've left the house. Yeah. And oh, yeah. now, like, I'd, we'd lose our minds if we couldn't if I didn't know where my kids were at at, at any given point in time. When I think about, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 46, so I was, um, gosh, I was a couple years younger than Janelle at this point in 84. I was nine. And I, I just, um, yeah, I mean, I remember just leaving and then coming home even after dark in this in a very small town where anybody could have done anything to me. Yeah. Easy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same. I'm just I'm I'm a couple years younger than you, but uh, uh, same thing. Like we just went and did whatever and yeah. everybody was OK. We like my kid. My kids can't even like go make out with their boyfriends and girlfriends like my some. <laughs> my my son like uh, i remember last, last spring like i i call him i'm like what are you doing parked out in that cornfield and he's like uh what? we're just uh, i'm stargazing like stargazing there's not there's the, it was it's completely overcast there's not a star in the sky you idiot get on the road get off the road yeah i mean yeah i remember in like even the early 90s you know me and my friends in the neighborhood were playing like flashlight tag in the middle of the night with flashlights running across the street, like doing mm-hmm. whatever the hell we wanted. Sorry, mom. Uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, like I don't, I don't know how you guys did it. Like how did, how did parents deal with that? I would have so much anxiety yeah. all the time. Yeah. But the, so, but it's, I think it's important to draw that, that difference in this story yeah. to know that it was back in the, in the early eighties when none of that stuff existed, it was perfectly normal to come home. That would happen with my parents all when we lived in town. It would that you know, if I wasn't home, they just assume I'm down the road at a, at a friend's house or somewhere. Um but but so once they realize that she's not home, they call the police. The police come and they find snow or tracks in the snow. Now I was I was a little confused were the were they like like they made entry through a window or just like they were walking around the house looking through windows? It's still unclear. No one knows uh, what happened beyond that. I mean, the facts that we know are that there were footprints in the snow. The police, you know, one of the detectives who ultimately solved the case um, in 2019, 2020, um, was very critical of the way the Greeley Police Department went about their initial investigation and their investigation for many years. Um, So they were not able, we know, to discern the type of shoe, the, the size of the shoe. Um, This whole idea of footprints in the snow was supposed to be what Greeley police told every, or, or said at the trial anyway, we'll get to the trial was hold back evidence, evidence that only they knew, but there were a lot of neighbors out after, I mean, you can imagine 
You've got a bunch yeah. of police around. Neighbors are coming out, gawking, looking, talking. You know, you can see footprints in the snow. It's mm-hmm. it's not as if you can't see that if you're just, right. let's say, a neighbor. Um, so, you know, the idea that this was holdback evidence is pretty thin. And, you know, ultimately it didn't it didn't really go anywhere. And it certainly didn't help them solve the case. Right. And they said there was no signs of a struggle inside the house. She was just gone. Right. There was there was nothing that appeared to be stolen. No, she was just gone. And and we still don't really know what happened that night. Right. So now that let's jump to um, a little more than 15 years later, uh, about 30, <laughs> 20 more years than that. Um, yeah. So the, so this, this company is digging a pipeline and they and they come across human remains. So yeah, I assume that means that she was she was buried. Yes. One one important thing to know, and you know, I don't know if we really drove it home in the podcast enough. I found this fascinating. So the sand in this area outside of Greeley is like beach it's it's not it's not hard. So in December it's easy as so macabre, but to bury a body would not be difficult. It would take a matter of ten minutes or so because it's like beach sand. Even uh-huh. in the wintertime. Um, so, yeah, so they were digging up in 2019. They were digging up this pipeline. And it is it is a huge field. I mean, had they been a couple clicks away, they would have totally missed her. Um, right. But And thankfully, they noticed it, quite honestly. I mean, they're sure. using giant equipment, and they noticed this skull, which has right. a single they, bullet hole. Yes. Yeah, and that was later positively identified as being Janelle. Yes. Uh, and cause of death was single bullet hole to the head. Now, how did they um, uh, Panky? I, I, his first name's escaping me. Um, what was Panky's first Stephen name? Panky. Stephen Panky. Yeah. Stephen Panky. How did they then? I mean, because that's pretty incredible. You're talking about a 35 year old cold case. They they bring her body up, they identify her. How did they make the connection from? her remains to Stephen Pankey. Stephen Pankey was there all along. So let's go back to 19. So we're talking about December 84. She disappears. Mm -hmm. Um, In January, Stephen Pankey was a guy who sold sort of old rundown cars and in Greeley. And he was married to a woman named Angela. So the day after, um, she Janelle disappears. Angela tells a, an account in which um, Stephen decides all of a sudden that he wants to go out of town. He didn't want to go out of town before, but he wants to go out of town for the holidays. Let's get the hell out of town. Goes mm-hmm. to visit his family, then abruptly needs to come back to Greeley. And on the way back to Greeley, he's telling her, uh, find find news about that girl who disappeared in Greeley. Um, makes her turn every station, listen to everything. Makes her drive to the grocery store to grab newspapers. Obsessively reads about Janelle. Then they finally get home. And again, this is only a couple of days after she's disappeared. Uh-huh. She sees him digging in their backyard. And then later their car explodes in flames, into flames. Weird, right? Okay. So yeah. An- Angela... Angela... <laughs> Stephen is a strange guy, and Angela, he's also physically abusive to Angela, so she knows she can only press it back then so far. Meanwhile, January 85, not very long, clearly, after Janelle goes missing, Stephen goes to the Greeley police twice and says, I have information about the Janelle Matthews case. Um, Tell me information you have. I'll tell you the information that I have. 
they totally blow him off as a quack. And that's it. You know, so he appears in that case file in January 85. Right. Then um, Stephen would then go on with his family not long after to move to Idaho. While he is in Idaho, he begins obsessively writing about Janelle. And Stephen is a guy who loves to sue anybody who looks at him. Civil suits. Anything. Anything. He starts filing tons of unrelated civil suits. And buried in these civil suits, let's say on page 45, page 60, he writes, I would get the death penalty if someone found Janelle Matthews' body. He writes, I'm a master manipulator. Um, I, uh, you know, he is is writing that the state is trying to frame him for the death of Janelle Matthews. Again, these are civil cases that have nothing to do with Janelle Matthews. But he is, you know... He doesn't have a lawyer. He's representing himself in these strange cases, and he's writing uh, the most bizarre things about Janelle Matthews for pages and pages and pages, and yet nobody is noticing. Nobody is noticing for years. He goes to the trouble between 2011 and 2014 to actually write letters to the district attorney in Greeley with the same kind of stuff. I know what happened to Janelle Matthews. No, no one does anything. Nothing happens. Did so, you interview him? No, no, no. Wow. And that's what I found so... This is why, I mean, you can hear my voice going up like 10,000 octaves. I just... I, this is extraordinary. You know, mm-hmm. why... He's almost like, you know, I hate to make an American musical reference, but I love musicals. He's Mr. Cellophane. He's... <laughs> he is... He's there, but nobody wants to listen. And um, I just was very fascinated by the psychology of that. Yeah, I don't Crazy. get it. I'm sitting here yeah. in my mind like, why is, is he trying to get caught? Was I mean, doesn't, I mean, he fought the case once he was caught. So, <laughs> right. Um, gosh, such a complicated and long case. Um, but yes, by the point that the... So let's back up here. In, in around 2014... Two detectives at the Greeley Police Department who are talented detectives get the case. One of Uh them is Robert Cash, known for being adept at cold cases. Robert Cash, coincidentally, has a personal tie to the Matthews family. He actually went with Janelle's older sister to homecoming, Mm. and he feels a personal draw to this case, too. And then you've got uh, Prill, who's the other detective— Definitely like the typical TV cop duo. Prill is a buzz cut, don't F with me expression. Former military guy. Cash looks like, um, gosh, Anthony Michael Hall. All grown okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? Red hair. Very affable guy. Uh-huh. Um, they team up and they really start to go through and they start to see what a mess the initial investigation was it's a mess because it's completely disorganized. It takes them an entire year to go around finding little Easter eggs, documents all over the Greeley police department, putting it together. And they realize Prill going methodically through it was like, who's this guy? Stephen Pankey from 1985. What's up with that? Uh, Prill then starts to see what I immediately saw when I pulled those public records and court documents related Uh. to Stephen Pankey. All of those strange writings about Janelle. So, and this is before her body was found. It's before her body is found, yeah. yeah. But not not too long before her body is found. Not too right. long. 
Yeah. So then a couple years later, they so once they identified her body, did they just then go right for him as far as their prime suspect? Yeah, it would it would appear so. I, I don't know whether or not, you know, it was the finding of her body that propelled them to ultimately go after Panky because they already had at that point, they already had all the evidence that they needed to go interview him. But once they found her body, it does seem to be like a real fire in the pants to go mm-hmm. get him. So they go to his condo in Idaho and for a little surprise visit. And they try to get him to talk. And Panky said, no, you're harassing me. Get away. And then they served a search warrant on his place the next day. And they find, you know, once they get all of his devices, they find that Pinky's been making thousands of searches, uh, you know, for Janelle for many years. A lot more more obsessive writings, that kind of thing. Well, there are a ton of twists and turns in this case, and we'll leave the conclusion for people to listen to season two of Suspect. Um, Should be noted, as you you briefly mentioned, that... Panky actually uh, ran for governor of Idaho twice. There's so much that's bizarre about this story. Sometimes I forget to add the extra cherry bizarre on top. Yeah. (laughs) He, yes, he ran for governor, like you said, twice. Let's keep in mind this is Idaho. I don't mean to be disrespectful to Idaho, but even people who are into Idaho politics will tell me, you know, it takes a lot to out crazy the next crazy politician. Right. So it's not like, I mean, you know, it was disappointing to see that there wasn't a lot of anyone could have backgrounded Panky. He was running for governor. Anybody could have pulled these yeah. civil suits and said, who is this guy? Who is he writing about? Let's Google Janelle Matthews. Nobody did that, to my knowledge. So anyway, yeah, he ran for governor. He ran for sheriff after he was named as a person of interest um, oh. for of Twin Falls, Idaho. Um, yes, he was. Oh, he was calling the cops bozos. That was his word. He sounds like Trump. <laughs> Do you have any other colorful <laughs> names? For the- <laughs> he he just you know he he had a lot of extreme what I would consider you know very very extreme views on his campaign website. He did talk about his love of Superman and how he was fascinated that no one would know that Superman was Clark Kent. That you could be two people. I mean, it was so on the nose. So much of what he wrote was just ridiculous on the nose. Well, as I said, this story is full of twists and turns. There are a million more details that you haven't gotten in this this short interview. Her name is Ashley Fonts. The podcast is called Suspect. We're talking about season two, Vanished in the Snow. It's all about the Janelle Matthews case. Check it out. Will definitely be your next big true crime binge. And as I said, it's free for Amazon Prime members or on the Wondery Plus app. Uh, And I assume wherever you get your podcasts, you can listen to. That's right. It's everywhere. Check it out. It's It's a really good one. You can binge the whole thing right now. All six episodes plus a bonus are already available. Ashley, thanks so much for taking time out to chat with us. It's been fun. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Kelly Barron's Brink. Our production manager and co-host is Erica Cantor. 
Music and show artwork was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com, and episode artwork is created by John Hayes. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. Make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. And thank you so much for listening. And make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. Oh, my God.